Welcome to a throwback edition of the Social Flight Live podcast, where we feature a special past episode that stood out from all the rest. Join our live broadcast every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. We have a great program for you this evening. AOPA President Mark Baker is here with us. It's going to be so fascinating to hear from Mark, uh, really uh, fascinating. Before we get started, just a few things and updates uh, from us here uh, at the show. I just wanted to go through and uh, give you an update on, on some things going on to help inspire and support general aviation. Um, let's turn this back on there. Um, what I'd like to do here, let me share my screen. There we go. And... Um, you know, we started Social Flight Live to support general aviation during the crisis, and we've done uh, a number of things during this in order to uh, uh, in order to kind of go and, and get started with it. Um, one of the things that um, uh, we've done is we have our program, of course, with flying coming back here. That is aviation social distancing, one propeller apart and one community together. Uh, uh, many organizations, airports and, and local clubs have asked us uh, for a copy of this with their own logo. And so if you uh, send that, uh, it's uh, just a request. Uh, you can see the information right here at info at socialflight.com. Just uh, send a request here. We're happy to add your logo to this, send it back to you, and you can use it in any way that you see fit. Another part of what we've been doing here, of course, is takeoffs for takeout. We want to save our airport restaurants, do everything possible to support local aviation businesses during this time. And so um, send us your stories, send us your pictures, we'll feature them. We've got lots and lots of cool things going on here to help do it. And we also share, of course, our own stories as part of that. And so one of the stories I would like to share here is a personal one. Ben Simon, my youngest son now, soloed last Friday, July 31st. Very proud of him. And, and to see positive things like this, exciting milestones in everyone's aviation career uh, happening, even despite the pandemic and the crisis and so much bad news that happens around us is really inspiring. And uh, I'd love to hear more stories as well from everyone else uh, around having to do with that. In addition, I'd like to share a trip that we did because we always want to show you some cool places to go to get out there and fly. We took our family on this wonderful trip that is to Bowling Green, Kentucky, um, uh, coming all the way up from Boston down here for this. It was great because there are two very cool things you can do down there. There's probably many, many more. But what we chose to do, we landed there in Bowling Green. We went to the Corvette Museum and we went houseboating on Lake Cumberland, which is a gorgeous, enormous uh, uh, houseboating uh, community and, and lake in the state park. And what's wonderful about this is this is something that is perfect for general aviation. Um, our uh, you know, world right now makes a commercial air travel challenging for a lot of people. People are concerned about some of the risks associated with it. Here in our general aviation community, we have the ability to continue to travel, to show people that they can do things within their socially distanced personal circles and still travel, still do the things that make us the community that we are. And so I just wanted to share a few of those pictures 
and wonderful experiences. Feel free to write me if you want information about how to go do a trip like this for yourself. It is not very expensive, and it is truly a once-in-a-lifetime memory that you can make with basic general aviation uh, flying. At this point, I'd like to uh, introduce Mark Baker. With 40 years and more than 10,000 flight hours in his logbook, Mark Baker truly understands the general aviation community that he serves at the helm of the Aircraft Owner and Pilots Association. Mark's a commercial pilot with single and multi-engine land and seaplane ratings, a rotorcraft rating, type ratings in Cessna Citation 500, 525s, even the DC-3. He's worked his way through numerous airplanes, including a Cessna 177 Cardinal, various B-tail Bonanzas, Barons, a Model 36 like we fly here at Social Flight, and many more, all for business, pleasure, all around the gambit of what general aviation does for our world. He's even flown everything from business jets to helicopters and historic aircraft like the Ford Trimotor. Um, my personal favorite, I will say, is always seeing him arrive in a seaplane at uh, the uh, EAA Air Venture event uh, at AOPA's special event that they have there. And so I am grateful to welcome Mark on Social Flight Live to share his story and insights into the work that AOPA is doing and how general aviation is faring during the pandemic and beyond. Welcome, Mark. How are you? Great, Jeff. And again, thanks for what you do and keeping the community alive and excited about general aviation. There's lots of good things going on, and I look forward to spending the, uh, the evening with you and talking about things that are all good and all good things in aviation. Yeah, and, and, and again, I am so grateful for the work that you and AOPA do to make all this possible because it is, it is so hard, it seems, when crisis happens like, like this for, uh, for our, our world to be stifled. We have a very fragile community. And, um, and it, so tell me a little bit about uh, what's, what's been happening at AOPA. Well, it has been a busy period, uh, you know, since the recognition of this pandemic coming out in sometime in March. Um, you know, through now, there's been some challenges at some local airports and local health ordinances, uh, you know, seemingly trying to affect and shut down airports or you know, FAA-mandated airports. It was really small number, you know, kind of less than 10, uh, but to date, all of those airports are open. Uh, you know, but there's been also an effect in the flight training world, what are the right protocols uh, to use for flight training, particularly for it's people unknown to you outside your family and things like that. So we've worked hard to put up um, kinds of information on our website that helps people identify what they need to do and be careful and cleaning and all those kind of things. And the social distancing of more than six feet away from one another in an airplane is impossible, as we all know. Uh, unless you are flying a 747. So for general aviation, it has created some challenges. But I'm here to say that I have never seen more activity in and around the, you know, these general aviation airports with people taking lessons, buying, buying aircraft, just out getting current, staying current, uh, enjoying because maybe they're home or maybe they're I've decided they're going to go see a relative by a general aviation airplane or really being serious about buying it. We've seen tremendous growth and activity around that. Even flying clubs are growing right now. So general aviation could be one of the uh, things that comes out ahead uh, and a very sad time for a lot of our airline brethren and other people that are involved in some other parts of professional aviation, very challenged. But private aviation is here and is doing very well. That's such great news. I mean, you know, early on, uh, it seemed like there was uh, a, a really a lot of uh, stress during some of that uh, lockdown period and uh, and people not knowing where things were going to go and there was it seemed a a concern about 
you know, should we be flying at that point? Um, even though people might be flying completely alone or only in there with, with family members, there was this kind of guilt almost about doing it. And do you think we're past that completely? Yeah, I think we have. I think you're much like whether it's the RV industry or the boating industry in, in its purest form of recreation and its form of transportation. Aviation is seen, general aviation, no different than getting in your car or your motorhome, as long as, again, you do it responsibly and respect other people's distances. I think you can travel and still get around this country or just go up for a ride. I think the early days in, in March and April, there's just a lot of unknown about what was going to happen next. And I think at this point in time, we've gotten further away from what, what um, that means in a total shutdown and being a responsible way to move around the country or around just staying current or going for a ride, much like people are doing in, in other forms of transportation. Right. And of course, it's it's so important because it, it that fabric, more than any uh, huge organiz- uh, you know, business adventure or anything like that, it seems like our activity, like literally what everyone watching tonight is doing is, are you flying? Are you not flying? Literally becomes the, the life or death of, of FBOs and flight schools and, and avionics companies and engine companies. Like everything relies so closely on whether or not um, pilots are actually participating. Well, in, in the local area where I'm in now in the Midwest, the, the uh, FBOs that I've been talking to have been seeing 60% growth in avgas sales over year over year in month of May, June, and July. Um, so these are local Wisconsin, Minnesota, you know, even out in the Dakotas, I mean, kinds of activity uh, localized to these areas maybe, but again, anecdotal, we don't have a full and complete picture of the, uh, the usage up. But every flight school that I talk to has seen a different kind of student coming in, either upgrading a rating or finishing up a rating, more of a, an attitude about general aviation than maybe uh, professional career in flying. Um, so we have lots of connectivity in this uh, great thing in the 5,000 public use airports in this country. And for the most part, uh, we're seeing the light turbine down to the Cessna 120, 140 world, uh, very active. Wow. Now, so you mentioned ratings and stuff. So I, before we lose track of this, I'd like to go back in time and I, Tell me about your story in aviation, because it's it's fascinating. I mean, that list that I rattled off of aircraft that you have flown in your past and also the things that you're even doing now just puts a huge smile on my face. So <laughs> what, what's your story about getting involved in aviation? Well, certainly an addiction. I've never had enough money for drugs uh, because of my addiction <laughs> to aviation. Uh, but, you know, it started early on for like a lot of folks. You know, my grandfather went to school uh, in an early stage with this young guy named Charlie Lindbergh. So he considered himself a, a follower of the Charlie Lindbergh story, as we all know, crossing the sphere of St. Louis. And when uh, my father worked uh, his way through high school uh, at North Central Airlines cleaning DC-3s. But neither of them had the, uh, the ability at that point in time to, to pursue aviation, although they used to take me out to the penny-a-pound rides. And I did take my... Like ground school in high school, so it's one of the reasons I have such a strong application for trying to create education in aviation in high school. And uh, it changed the trajectory of my life, I, I really believe, by having that interest in sitting uh, later on at the University of Minnesota Flight School and looking outside at a brand new barren in the, in the middle 70s thing. I don't think I'll ever afford it, but one of these days, well, I've owned, I think, 13 different barons now since then. Uh, I'm not sure which drove which, the need to fly or, you know, and feed that addiction. 
through uh, my business um, career, but I think they were very correlated in terms of I was driven to to succeed in business and, and modestly so, uh, interesting retail career. But I used aviation for part of that career. I used it to commute to families or meetings and other things. And I, w- I was always able to get to places that a lot of people weren't able to get to A, B, and C in the same day. And I, I certainly was able to do that. What was fun later in life is my very first airplane was a Cessna 150 while I was going to the University of Minnesota. And I gave my grandfather his very first plane ride. He had never ridden a plane ride. And wow. then a few years later, I bought a, a, uh, another Cessna 150 and a, and a Sierra. And my dad got his license. Uh, my father got his license with one of our old airplanes. And then later on, I got his full plane rating in uh, my, my Super Cup. So, so you were so you were able to make your your father's aviation dreams basically come through come true from your own aviation experience and letting him do that on your aircraft. That's that must have been that just must be a memory and a feeling that you just can never lose. It was uh, very satisfying, and he still flies with me today. He, he ended up owning a couple airplanes, a Stinson one hundred and eight, one seventy two, uh, later on, and uh, he's still eighty six years old, or soon to be, uh, and still loves and enjoys flying, but. Stays with me mostly in the in the airplane. Um, but we got my brother here, my sister-in-law, two of my son-in-laws. My son is just soloed, so I'm I'm uh, trying to spread the addiction. <laughs> You're doing a very good job of it. So now you keep listing all these different planes, and uh, it's it's fascinating because it, obviously some people are deeply involved in general aviation and they've had the same plane for you know 25 years. What is it? that uh that drives you to like just rifle through all these different planes and keep collecting um both planes in in sequence and then also just continuing to to you know trade one for another to keep your experience going yeah i've only kept one airplane for a really long time my super cub which i've had a few other super cubs but i bought my super cub from the original owners in 1953 uh, over 25 years ago I uh, bought that airplane and, and had three or 400 total time when I bought it. It's got over 200 hours on that airplane. I've had that to the top of the Hudson Bay, to the bottom of Mexico, all over the back country, and, and then down to the Keys and up to the East Coast. So wow. that, that one airplane, and then behind me is my Cessna 185, which I've had in a number of them as well. This particular one I'm also the second owner on. Uh, I bought it with 700 hours on it. I don't think it's got 1,250 hours on it. But I redid the panel, paint, interior. And those two airplanes are part of the staple. I'm no longer taking offers and never sell them. <laughs> the other airplanes that I've enjoyed, though, I've owned over 100 different aircraft personally. Uh, Wait a minute. Say that again slowly for everybody. You've owned over 100 aircraft personally? Yep. Oh, my I, God. That's amazing and wonderful. Uh, it's stupid. It? No, it's not. <laughs> and it's some <fantastic>. models. <laughs> I've owned 13 different Barons. One, and that's not counting the one Baron I owned three times. I sold to a friend, bought it back. Sold to another friend, bought it back. And then and one Baron, two of the other Barons I owned twice uh, over that period of time. I've always kept one of those around. Um, and a bunch of T6s and round motors have kind of been one of those affinities that I've had. And I had the opportunity to fly my friend Greg Kirk's tri-motors, the Stinson's and the Fords over the years. But the sound of a round motor and had the unique opportunity. They've had uh, T6s, like I say, Beach 18 on floats, a Beaver, um, see, uh, a Waco, uh, a Howard DGA. Oh, my know, God. The, 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 the. And so 
And part of the thing I enjoy about him is, is finding an uh, interesting airplane that may need a little bit of TLC, taking the project on and, and finding ways to get that accomplished, flying it, learn how to fly it you know, safely and wisely, and then um, look for something else that intrigues me that I haven't flown. And um, the list is getting smaller, but there's still quite a few out there yet. So what I'm, I mean, one of the things I'm hearing, which is really cool, is that it's, it's, it's certainly not that there's anything about the planes that you own that causes for you to move on. It's that there's this next challenge or next adventure of an aircraft that kind of comes up that you, you, you seem to be like, hmm, that looks interesting. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to learn how to fly that. I'd like to touch it and feel it and be part of that. You know, I think all of us have to think about whether it's a Cessna 120 or a Mooney or whatever plane you're flying today is as stewards for those aircraft. You know, there's a couple hundred thousand aircraft in this country today. And, you know, we're building about a thousand a year. And unfortunately, we're wrecking about a thousand or losing about a thousand a year. So we're not really gaining on this inventory. We have all the responsibility, if we're lucky enough to own this stuff, is to take care of it and uh, hopefully make them better for the next person to buy and share or put them in a club or people can touch them. But it's one of the things I really believe in is, is getting these airplanes out the door, out of the hangar, and, and have them do what they do best, which is you know, make a little bit of noise, take somebody for, for a ride, and, and look down at this beautiful earth. It's a, it's a fascinating perspective, and, and it, I really do agree with it, because people think of something like a home as being so personal and having all these memories attached to it and, and having it mean so much, and it's basically permanent as you know, real estate. Uh, I think it, it seems like airplanes are the same thing, and that isn't true of a lot of things. A lot of things become disposable out there or not really classics, uh, but airplanes really are. They, they can be around forever, and we, I, I love that you called it being a steward of that because someday someone else, maybe it's in your own family, but it's going, it's going to move on. The plane outlives most people. That's right. Yeah, the, this, these aircraft, and you know, I've had the great opportunity to fly lots of airplanes in the 30s, 40s, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. And, you know, we used to talk about a new 185 and an old 185. Well, the whole span of the lifetime of 185 is like 20 years. And the, <laughs> and the newest one, the newest one is a 1985, is 35 years old, you know. So, you know, we're, we're dealing largely with an inventory of classics. Um, and, and they all are so much fun to fly. When people ask me, what airplane wouldn't you buy? I can't come up with hardly any. I mean, no, I like them all. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you had to go, like, if you looked back and you could just jump into one time period or, or another, would you, given that the planes are still around now, would you rather be now with all the modern things or whatever we have, or, or was there a, a, a kind of a, a period of, of planes that, that that's close to your heart that, that you're not looking for the latest avionics or something? Well, you know, my, my favorite kind of flying is both backcountry and water flying and because the skills that you have to employ about where you're going to land, how you're going to land, what are the conditions are not controlled by a control tower or piece of pavement. Um, so you, you sharpen your skill sets and certainly, you know, Flying around, you know, the old beach 18 I had and being, you know, a, an outfitter, you know, bringing people to a camp would have been something that's, to me, quite romantic uh, yeah. to be able to do that and, and put your skills to work. But I also say right now, today, 185 and a half here, it's actually got a really nice panel. It's got a really good autopilot. It's got a really powerful engine. And I don't want to go backwards. <laughs> yeah. So I, even my super cub's got a you know, nice GPS in it and the, something to be said about the modern equipment that we have today. Um, I'm really 
glad we have it. And a lot of things that AOPA did to make sure that we have access to non-TSO to STC stuff so we can upgrade our older airplanes at, at lower costs. Yes. Uh, and we've got a very competitive community of, of avionics people that are helping us have better situational awareness at lower costs and lighter and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, well, I, I think there's a, uh, always a pang to say, geez, I, I wish I could have win. I'm really happy where I'm at right now. That makes sense. Definitely. It's, it's easy to forget uh, how, how challenging it was when you didn't know where you were just by looking at a map. And it wasn't long ago <laughs> when that was the case. No, I remember coming across Canada, one of my other super comes on straight floats with some map and lap, as I used to call it. And then, of course, the windshield leaked and all of a sudden you have mush in your lap trying to figure out where you're at. You know, it wasn't that much fun, really. (laughs) (laughs) So you, you mentioned seaplanes, and obviously that, that, that I mentioned earlier, that's when I've seen you most of the time is getting out of a seaplane one way or another. Um, when we've, we've met and talked, um, how did, when did that begin? When did, your, when did you get the, the bug for that? Well, I've always had an appreciation for it, but my Super Cub actually was my first uh, deal. A friend of my father's had bought this airplane new in 53, and he uh, stopped flying it in 1970-something. And it had trees growing up inside, you know, private hangar around the lake in the Twin Cities here. And uh, he, he interviewed me, is a better way to say it, uh, to buy his baby. Um, <laughs> and I, I bought, it had 134, 35 horsepower with straight floats on it at that time. And um, I bought that airplane, and I got my Brian Skanky, who was Seaplanes Adventures, taught me how to fly. I was his first student on, on floats, kind of 28 years ago or something like that. And then I started hanging, you know, using the float plane on straight floats and keeping it and going to Canada and going to places and just really started to enjoy that. And then I went from that to 180s, 185s, 206s, beavers, caravans on floats, beach 18 on floats. And as I mentioned to you earlier right now, and I, I did my water multi-engine you know, widget. I flew a goose. I'm now getting my type rating in an albatross. So, I think I'm going to max out on my, my flying experiences here, but I just enjoy that freedom. And it's a very unique freedom in this country to be able to land in so many bodies of water. And as, as you probably well recall, early on in the going Curtis days, that was their runways was water because they didn't have you know, pavement. Of course, they didn't have very many you know grass strips at that point in time. So water is as a big part of the history of flying. How people were planning to, to move around the world. Wow, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So now you have all that background. What brought you to AOPA? Well, it, it, you know, having worked for um, a number of home improvement industry companies, and uh, in my career, started off in Knox, somewhere in the Twin Cities, and then um, we sold that part of Payless Cashways. Went to Scotty's in Florida. My, my first time meeting the founders of Home Depot, and they offered me a job right away. At that point, I turned down. Moved to California for another company, home base, home club. And at uh, that point in time, the founders of Home Depot made me an offer I couldn't refuse. You're going to become the, uh, the president of the Midwest Division of the Home Depot, which there were no stores. So I opened up the whole group from out of Chicago and became the ultimately the chief operating officer, chief merchant for Home Depot in the late 90s and early 2000s. So it was a pretty good career and uh, afforded me the opportunity you know, to commute with my own airplanes and from a P-Baron to 340s to King Airs to I guess about my first Citation 500 uh, back in the middle 90s. Uh, got my single pilot type rate. And then I you know, did some work with Scott's Smoker Grow on the board and was the president of that company and did um, 
gained it on, took it, started it up, threw it up, took it public, sold my piece of it. Uh, did, recently did a turnaround at, at uh, Orchard Supply on the West Coast, sold that to Lowe's. And uh, got this call seven and a half years ago. How would you like to run a nonprofit uh, from a recruiter? I said, I'm purposely crazy. And uh, he said, well, it's, it's, a, it's an aviation. So, well, if it's AOPA, because I knew they were starting the search, I said, I, I dropped my luggage. I'm on my way. And shortly thereafter, met the board. And, and the board uh, said if I was interested and it was mine to, to choose. And I, I really decided at that point in time to take a, a kind of a, I call back nine of life approach. I do what I really want to do and not do another retail turnaround <laughs> retail startup. Um, so um, I took this on seven years ago, actually this week, this week, wow. seventh anniversary complaint. Um, uh, and um, so it's been really fun. Uh, I've enjoyed the community, uh, invested, you know, reasonable time, but gotten great satisfaction on the things that we've been able to accomplish as a community together over the last seven years, basic med, you know, making sure we get CBP back in there in the right place with not doing, you know, uh, no suspicion stops, stuff like that, that we've been able to get rise to the top and have very good meetings and have a great staff and, and, and really great people at AOPA, I think accomplishing and, and supporting the general aviation community. And I have just enjoyed every day of the last seven years. Wow. And, and so let's talk about some of those things because they, they've, they've been pretty big accomplishments and there's still a lot going on uh, to talk about. I mean, one of the biggest ones, obviously, that you mentioned first is Basic Med. Um, so we're in, what, year three now of uh, Basic Med? That's right. Yep. It's a, it has been a very rewarding um, transition to get that accomplished for Airmen. 58,000 folks under basic med uh, right now probably one of the largest active groups probably a third of maybe the really highly active pilot something like that um it's a it was clear to me that the community was frustrated that since the 70s there's been some talk about some kind of a, a third class alternative or third class this or that and there was no nothing going on and i had met with uh, michael Ward, who was the fa administrator a number of times and they were frustrated they were not able to get it internally moved and even what they were considering was much smaller than what ultimately got accomplished through the law change. It might have been a you know, one passenger day VFR kind of 180 horsepower. Right. And and we worked hard, pulled the community together, worked with the EA and all the other stakeholders. Uh, Jim Kuhn, who leads our, our group in DC, uh, has been a you know, a staffer in the in the house for a long time on the transportation. Was able to write a pretty coherent, you know. Uh, up to 250 knots, up to 18,000 feet, you know, up to five passengers, the VFR, IFR, you know, the whole program. And frankly, it ran through. It was a lot of work. We had some, <laughs> let's say it was straight line, but, you know, less than 1% of all legislation ever turns into a law. We got a law signed by Obama, and I would give the FAA tremendous credit. Uh, they actually got it done ahead of time in May of that uh, following year. And uh, today, it's been a wonderful program for a lot of people. Uh, and we can't see any uh, none, any adverse issue of safety. Uh, and so we continue to support it. We have it now for Mexico and um, uh, the Bahamas. Unfortunately, we were working really hard to try and get it done in Canada, either through a bilateral type agreement or through ICAO action, the National Civil Aviation Authority. And uh, while we're on the docket, by the way, on their docket, they run in a five- and seven-year cycle. We're actually four years ahead of cycle to get it on the IKO docket. 
and it's still in process. I'm still hopeful we'll get something done with Canada at some point in time, but it's a little mute this year because you can't go to Canada anyway, uh, right. at least to at least till September. And I doubt certainly soon thereafter, it's not likely to be very open. No, but, it's, but, it, but it's always good if, uh, if the, you can use your downtime productively and open the doors so that Correct. when it opens, we can do that. And I'd, uh, <laughs> I'd be remiss if I did not pass along that my Q and a line is lighting up with the word Canada right now. <laughs> a bunch of people. So I can see that your efforts to work with NAV Canada, uh, or the, or the Canadian FAA on that side, their, their version of it, um, CAA on that to get this passed uh, is definitely supported by our audience. And I, I know, and I, and I feel for it personally. I have a lot of friends that have campings in Canada and float planes, and and it's a very friendly country to travel to. Uh, and they have, you know, always welcome U.S. pilots. So we've just got to get this done. And uh, you know, I can't commit to you that absolutely be done in twelve months, but I can commit to you that we are going to work on it really hard until it gets done, because uh, I believe it's it's uh, it's attainable. That's, that's great. Now, um, one of the other kind uh, of questions that came in, we talked about different things that have happened recently or over the past 10 years, we think recently in our terms, uh, is uh, LSA also. Now, there's, what about like Mosaic and all the work going on to, uh, to try to update some of, some of that work, uh, some of that uh, world? Yeah, there was a, um, a year and a half ago, I guess already, almost two years now, um, really strong movement within the FAA and small airplane directorate to update. Why did we come up with this silly rule of what's an LSA? We want to make the safest airplane. We want to make an airplane that's structurally better. Uh, why should weight be the limit? Maybe it doesn't only allow one passenger, maybe different uh, kinds of interpretations. And I can't go into detail with that because it's still under rulemaking, if you will. But there is movement uh, that I think we're all going to be directionally pleased with. Uh, unfortunately, the derailment of the 737 MAX and FAA and, and uh, what's going on inside their legal department and now the pandemic has kind of derailed the energy that was happening that I think uh, many of us in the community really, really support, pretty excited about. And I think we will see it. I just don't know again if it's going to be six months or 12 months, but we'll start to see something. Do you feel that 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 whole experience of the of the Max and and all uh, all the things that went with it of uh, of issues with regulation and oversight and everything else? Do you feel that general aviation is either now or is going to be paying the price for that? Well, clearly we work very close with uh, Pete Bunce over at Gamma um, because the general aviation manufacturers are very concerned about the, the loss of delegated authority or the oversight uh, when you're trying to get new, faster, better things installed in airplanes at better, hopefully better prices. Um, but certainly enhancements and innovation. And the FAA could not hire enough people to be responsive in the real time. And good examples today are, you know, the auto land system that you've seen approved by Piper and headed for TBM and certainly thereafter probably Cirrus and others. Uh, I think is a, is a point where you know, that's a big step to have FAA sign off on that. And they have doing really good things around that. I think they continue to try and help work with us as we look at uh, propulsion systems, whether they be pure electric or hybrid systems, but they've got to update, move faster to try and get that stuff done. that is better for everybody. Um, and so I, I think there, there has been over the last year a loss, a little momentum, but I'm starting to feel like it's coming back that we're able to get products and, and processes improved to get things done for generation 
But as you can imagine, within the FAA, there's a lot of people that want to be accused of not managing the process. Right. Yeah, it did seem like like we've we've had this this renaissance of whether it be a NORSI that allowed uh, for um, uh, non-safety related the safety related uh, non-critical equipment that allowed uh, people to uh, install so many new products. Um, right about uh, being able to get non-certified uh, uh, avionics into the panel, a lot of it obviously being around avionics. Um, it did seem like there was a lot of momentum and freedom starting to happen to get towards safety and sort toward affordability. And, and hopefully that doesn't get derailed by people just getting back to kind of the FAA gold watch thing of, you know, if I say yes, um, I risk my gold watch of retirement. But if I say no, I'm fine. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit willing to support what the FAA has been doing for the general aviation side. I can't speak to the airliner construct and what they're going to end up um, putting in place there. But I think uh, there's a lot of support within the leadership of, on, on this part of the FAA to recognize, you know, um, there are, needs to be different ways we can put a 1965 Comanche and update it. And, and the manufacturers, whether they be Garmin or Avidyne or others, are now excited and true track and you know, all these autopilots that are coming along, Dynon, magnificent prices and, and right. great product. And they're, they're getting stuff approved. I think probably not quite as fast as I'd like to, but you know, we're getting it done. Now, one of the other areas I know that you've been working recently, uh, obviously we, we've seen even before the pandemic hit a real challenge around the insurance industry. And that's affecting a lot of folks. Um, oh boy. With rapidly rising insurance rates to not being able to get insurance for some people at certain ages or things like that. That was seemed to be pretty different world than uh, was happening even two years or a year before. Um, what are you finding on that? And I know you're working on that. Oh boy, I work on it every day, every week. Um, and so do our, a lot of our leadership at AOPA because we want to make sure that we don't wind up with uh, impossible insurance situations. Now, I will say, and not in defense of the insurance industry, but in just in the facts are. The facts are it's a very small pool. There have been big losses, i.e. Boeing and others that are part of our pool in aviation. Um, we're not expecting a GA to pick up Boeing's losses, but, you know, and a couple of those airline losses. Um, but we have a safe issue that we can continue to play back. We have half the fatal accidents in GA that we had 20 years ago, half the rate. Uh, we continue to put out more safety information through AOPA and uh, Safety Institute to try and get people to understand how they can become more safe. Um, so from a safety and a fatal accident, we don't have an argument. I mean, we, we've been moving in the right direction. We'll continue to move in the right direction. What there have been is, you know, a number of discussions about premiums and prices. And prices have gone up. There's no question about it. Recognizing that if you would have bet 20 years ago, uh, as I recall, when you got your first turbine or your first high-performance airplane, you paid more than you did 10 years ago. It went down because it went from, you know, probably a dozen or so underwriters to somewhere in excess of 20 for a while. So there was a lot of competition for the last um, dozen years. Two years ago, kind of reversed. They weren't making any money. You know, there's a you know, supply and demand and profitability kind of ratios. And so a number of the underwriters exited because they couldn't make any money in, in this category. And they were giving away, like, my opinion, very high limits of liability. And then when they got stung a few times on, on some tragic accidents, they didn't like that. And that's where they were trying to put some value in the equation. So now we have this opposite and equal reaction that's pretty extraordinary on the pricing 
in certain parts of this. But we sent out a number of communications through Tom Haynes Group. But work with your broker. Talk talk to him or her about what you're doing for your safety. Don't wait for them to tell you what to do. You know, be proactive on your safety. Do not we do not recommend changing underwriters for a couple hundred bucks. It's not a good idea right now. Because stay with them so that when you do turn seventy or seventy five. And asking somebody to take on a, a net new risk with, you know, maybe five or 10 years of your flying career left, it's a little harder for them to kind of get excited about that versus somebody you've been with for a number of years. Right. So we've been advising that. And yet we are still trying to figure out this age thing that some, not all, uh, just a, a number of underwriters have decided that we don't agree with them, by the way, at all. Uh, at age 75, you need to fly with a, a, another pilot. And, we, we just refute that, uh, and we don't think there's evidence to support that. I just think it's them tightening down on their portfolio and actually asking for some of these people to, to go shop. And it's hard for people to go shop at 75 years old right. for, a comp, for a complex airplane. So, But there are markets, uh, and we continue to work with uh, recommendations on what markets you can access, uh, good insurance at those levels. But and some of the things that we don't know, we have a very good visibility about what happens on a fatal or significant accident. We don't know how many people have left the tow bar on and tried to start the engine or bumped into the hangar. Or, you know, frankly, we don't even know about the gear ups on many, many occasions. Those are significant claims. So we want to work with the industry and the insurer to say, how do we help reduce claims that can make us a better investment for the insurance company? So it's a long pull. I, I wish we weren't there. But we're going to keep working it every day so people can get insurance. It may not be as cheap as it was two or three years ago. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, I think um, it would be helpful if, if at least the insurance company for their own, for themselves, was a, a, hopefully a little bit more creative in terms of what they allowed of variations in what people even bought for products. Because it seems like uh, with auto insurance, with other types of insurance, deductibles really matter. Uh, other things really matter. And it seems like uh, the people I've interviewed and talked to having to do with the insurance industry, they basically say, yeah, that doesn't affect much for us. Like we don't care whether it's no deductible or a thousand deductible or 5,000 deductible, your rate's going to be the same almost. Um, so there, there, there seems to be more talk about that because, you know, a, you're a Bonanza driver and if, if somebody, you know, if somehow kids went in without getting the year down or collapses or whatever, um, that's a hundred thousand dollar event these days. And they're darn close. And maybe the deductible needs to be a little higher uh, on that instance uh, because of, you know, there's a pilot issue there, potentially. Uh, and that's what they don't, they don't want to be in a position to argue, was it, you know, collapse or was it a failure, you know. So I understand a little of their part, but we do have to work with some of the matrix to figure out how to keep costs down and keep availability of insurance up. Yeah. And again, I'm not against that at all. I think having options is is good and having insurance company be able to say to someone like you just brought up, um, regardless of the reason, a gear up has a $10,000 deductible or a $20,000 deductible if you want this lower rate. Um, you know, at least there's options and it gives people options and hopefully it keeps that pool going, as you mentioned. Well, the seaplane uh, insurance, for instance, on Anfib goes up. Your deductible goes up quite a bit when it's on amphibs and if there's a, a water accident mm. uh, because the recovery is so much more expensive than there could be potentially. Um, so they're, they're starting to move that way. I would say they're not as far as I wish they were, but we're, we're working hard. Richard McSpadden in the uh, in our safety group is working with them to say, is there some kind of more sharing we could do uh, so that we can help work on those claims that we don't have real transparency? I'm not even sure much transparency there's among 
the, the underwriters because they kind of hold their cards pretty close. Is there a way we could do that that protects their privacy and share the claim so we can start working on those issues down below the costs? We're interested. Now, another area, of course, that's big that has to do with aviation is always around privacy. And I know AOPA has done a, a lot in that area. Um, one of them, obviously, one of the dramatic ones that comes up is when we start talking about ADSB. ADSB has been a huge boom for, for safety and information, weather, traffic in the cockpit, so many great things that it's brought to general aviation. It's also brought a lot of concerns about privacy. And uh, we've actually talked about that on our, on our program before with the FAA's uh, uh, programs and with the FAA on the program about ways that uh, people can enroll in lab program for limiting aircraft display or PIA for private IKO identifier information. Um, and, um, and I know AOPA is doing a lot of work with the FAA. Right now, we are, according to the FAA at least, I think one of the only, if not the only country that publishes all this private information on pilots, uh, who's registered, what their ratings are, medical, all this other stuff. What What's what's AOPA doing right now to help uh, the privacy side of things? Yeah, the encryption part of the of your ADSB uh, is something we in NBAA and, and worked and agreed with uh, the next gen committee that has to be a priority because for good and sufficient reasons for your own personal security, for potentially uh, business reasons where you don't want to uh, reveal where you're making these certain trips to, um, and frankly, Scarlet. Nobody's darn business. Uh, and same thing, we would, wouldn't expect people to be going down the highway and be you know, tracked and trailed uh, and disclosed. So we're working in that direction. Um, yet there, you know, there are some positives. I mean, if they know the identity of your aircraft, so they can know what the wingspan is and all those other kind of things and where you're headed and how fast you can get there. The ADSB is a wonderful. Uh, it, it really is uh, a big plus for us from the weather in the cockpit and the traffic in the cockpit. Uh, and I know you've used it. And, um, from my time in Florida, I can't believe how many airplanes I never saw. And so it's an important piece uh, moving forward in a safe environment and will be even more important as the uh, man part enters the airspace at higher levels, uh, knowing where that, that traffic is. So we got to find a way to do both. You know, have this traffic in the cockpit, really ask people to install it, leave it on, unless you find formation or some other need where you need to have it turned off because we want to see where people are at. We'll continue to work on figuring out how to keep this privacy thing right. And as I mentioned, you know, the FAA has agreed that they can't be using this stuff for enforcement if they want us to be compliant with installs and, and getting down there. So every time we come across any issue where there's been some suggestion of enforcement, we jump on that pretty hard because the FAA administrators on down have, have promised that that would not be part of the protocol. I think that, let me clarify that for everyone, because I found that uh, interesting and, and actually something I wasn't aware of, that part of the work that you did to establish the, the, the rules and, and be able to get this all through included not using ADSB for enforcement purposes. A lot of people don't realize that. That's right. Yeah, you know, when they were looking for the community to sign up and get behind the installs and, hey, you know, the general aviation community spent, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to install this stuff on their own. Uh, and AOPA supported that um, so that we could have a safer, better informed pilot in the cockpit in the FAA deployed lots of antennas uh, make sure that system could happen and we still got some work to do to get, make it effective in a lot of places but part of that uh, quid pro quo was to make sure that you know we weren't just setting ourselves up to be entrapped uh, for whatever violation that somebody would perceive so from Huerta when Dan Elwo was the acting administrator 
Uh, they both have said it and, and meant it. That's not to be used for enforcement action. So occasionally we'll have some some local FISDO or FA person may not be aware of that. We do an education uh, on that. Now, doesn't mean you should be you know turning it on and off and doing some things that you're not supposed to be doing. It just means that you know people make honest mistakes and wind up in the wrong place, and this can, this cannot be used as a gotcha. Right, but I think that's really important. I mean, especially given the the things like the legal services plan that AOPA offers, et cetera. I, it's it's pretty important for people to know if if you're concerned about a violation or if you've been contacted about something and they and it supposedly came from people looking at ADSB data, um, that 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 they should probably contact you guys. That's right, and then you know, the legal services. I'll make a pitch real quick because if you fly. You should be on that program. You, know, you can get lots of access to expert legal advice in the aviation community very quickly. And you know, the basic rules are get your NASA form filled out. Give us a call before you talk to anybody else. And, and as long as you, you've been a member before you have any potential FA uh, kind of uh, risk, we've done a remarkable job working with um, airmen to make sure that the right answer happens yep. and, uh, and, and i'll say i mean i'm a member of that and and i've gotten questions answered i've gotten help from them in different areas and, and they are fantastic so i'm a strong supporter talk about being worth the money i mean that oh, is for 100 bucks a year <laughs> yeah, yeah crazy yeah my yeah. approach was if you, if you had a gold level above that gold level i'd, I'd send them for <laughs> yes the- they do but the uh <laughs> you know the, they're, they're, they're the busiest thing activity they have going on today is People buying purchase, they want purchase contracts for aircraft because they're really busy That's doing those today. Yeah. Fantastic news. Yeah. Um, before we leave the subject of privacy, though, uh, one of the things that has also come in really has to do with um, privacy of, of the registry. Where does that come from? Like, what's the what's the justification on the other side? Why why do people believe that, as opposed to your driver's license, as opposed to your license plate on your car, that anyone should be able to look up? anything on your airplane or on yourself as a as a pilot and uh, where does that come from what's aopa you know what's your position on that well it's interesting you know from now we're, we're starting to lose a lot of availability to the airmen part of this thing because as you opt out you can go in and opt out of sharing your information on the faa your your license right now unfortunately oh. that's actually 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 where we get most of our um, leads to where new pilots are to become members of aopa but yeah about a third Maybe it's twenty-five percent now. Uh, airmen have opted out of sharing their information. You can you can do that. Okay, I didn't actually know that you could do this. You yeah, just the FAA. I'm not. Uh, I'm already an AOPM member, so you're not going to lose me. But uh, <laughs> contact them, and and then yeah. people can look up myself, my ratings, my medical, all that stuff. Yep. And the uh, that's good to know. Yeah, the registration side on the on the aircraft. We've been trying to work with the registration group. On, you know, this three-year thing. Let's move it out, uh, and and we'd like, really like to see that updated and. Frankly, um, you know, I think they could do it a lot different. I mean, the, for us to be able to register an airplane for five dollars, it, it's it's a great deal. Um, it costs them way more than handle that. I think it's time for them to update that whole system. And part of what Sam Graves has been working on is push the date out. We purged, you know, a lot of uh, derelict airplanes off the list. You know, 15 years ago, I think we showed almost 280,000 airplanes, something of that magnitude. And after the three-year registration kind of ground through, you know, really isn't an airplane anymore. It's a it's an aluminum recycling um, material. Um, that purge has happened, and I don't see any value in doing this three years. So there's there's a couple of uh, things that uh, the transportation group's working on, and our DC group are working on with the uh, the registration and completely updating it. 
makes uh, certainly makes a lot of sense. And again, the, some of the concern there is that there are companies I've, I've talked to them. I've, I've seen their data for, uh, for some of the other presentations that we've done that are marrying all of those databases together and attaching it to that ADSB data that you've seen and getting right. it from private networks. And so all of a sudden, as you mentioned earlier, when all of it is so public, the, the, there's there's an upside, right? People want to be able to look up sometimes and, and find out if someone's legal, find out if you know what the owner of an aircraft is, and there's a lot of positive things that can come of it. But there's also that risk that someone can literally say, "Hey, I want to know every time this person flies. I want to get. I want my phone to to you know go off with a notification when they take off, where they're going, where they land." And actually, there are services that do that right now, and that's well, obviously concerning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but big data exists. If you have a cell phone in your pocket and you're, you're at Disneyland, they know it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I, you know. I, I think the difference, I think, to most people is that we always can, or a lot of people are concerned about Big Brother is watching. Uh, and that all makes sense. I think what a lot of people now are realizing is it's not just Big Brother's watching, it's your neighbor's watching. Yeah. Like anyone's watching. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I'd like to see that word. What good does it do? Why are we doing it for whom? Um, you know, there's certainly ability to track and, you know, with spider tracks and doing your own personal tracking for family or friends doing it. So there's, there's ways we can accomplish, you know, whether it's safety of flight or just awareness of arrival. But I don't like the idea that everybody can see that I'm flying today or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, an, another area, of course, that, that there's a lot of work going on is the Air Safety Foundation. Um, that's 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 been huge. Uh, what, what's some of the latest things happening there? Well, Richard and his team in the Air Safety Foundation have really been developing, and I hope you've seen some of the videos that are really, unfortunately, intense but in an emotional event because we want people to think hard about what caused this accident. Uh, you know, the, the video work that they're doing and the stuff that they've got online, I mean, it's amazing. Over 8 million views we'll have this year on our safety stuff, and it's free. Um, it's free because, you know, the foundation is set up as a separate part of the nonprofit. It's raised by donor money to make sure that we don't have a cost of safety because there's a cost of not being safe. So because of generous donors, we've always had that uh, piece with ALPA. And as you know, the other part of the foundation now works on the whole You Can Fly piece, which is about how we grow the pilot population, how we grow the young people interested in aviation. But uh, it has been uh, really rewarding to see the whole industry, like I said, half the fatal accidents rate since they started working on it 20 some years ago. is because of uh, the efforts of, uh, of the foundation and, and industry to work together to try and create different outcomes. That's, that's excellent. I mean, I encourage everyone to go out there and, and, and of course, see it. There's, there's so many things that you've got going on there that are really so, so fantastic. What, what would you say now, coming back to the, our, where we are now in the, in the crisis, um, there's, it's, it's obviously a very dynamic situation. We're looking at taking a, a, our next uh, a flying adventure coming up, and we have to comply with new regulations uh, here in uh, Massachusetts having to do with uh, travel and, and testing and all the things that go around that. Um, where do you see general aviation uh, going in the next few months, six months, a year, How, when it comes to the crisis and the work you're doing? I think, you know, uh, we are going to see general aviation be accessed even more. I uh, saw the, the notice from Wheels Up, you know, uh, one of the uh, um, service groups that flies either, you know, in a, in a way that helps people move around, go to their family places or meet their other family. Or, and their business is up significantly. Uh, and they operate everything from citations to tenures. 
And it's nice to hear that what's going on is that they're starting to see that kind of activity. In GA, I think you're going to see huge growth for the next number of years because people that have the wherewithal are going to avoid going on the airlines. They're going to avoid going to the airports if they can't avoid it. And I think there's some numbers out there that I've read that there's 10 million people in this country that can afford a million dollars something. And if that's the case, um, there are going to be a lot of people with five or 10 or 20,000 more show up to buy bonanzas. There aren't that right. many around. So I, I think you're going to see significant growth. Um, and I think we have to figure out how to be responsible. We don't want to be the transmitter and, and uh, be seen as cavalier. Um, but you can still do this in a safe way, no different than you can in a, an RV or boat or a car. Um, so I think we just have to be responsible about how we move around the country. But I, I am bullish about what you're going to see. Are you already seeing numbers that basically are starting to reflect that, that positivity? Yeah. I mean, uh, our little aviation finance group at AOPA had the best month ever. Uh, and so I was really, June was really, really good too. Uh, the best month ever. That's fantastic. Yeah, we're seeing loan uh, requests coming in, and you know, remember, a lot of people don't use loans for aircraft; they do other forms of financing or personal availability. But we're seeing tremendous growth in interest in buying aircraft. And when I talk to the OEMs, uh, everybody's having a really good year selling selling brand new airplanes, and therefore used ones are getting tighter supply. Um, I talked to an insurance underwriter this morning about our issues and uh, they had their one of their biggest month in new business coming in over the transom so and they, the, the fbo in new richmond wisconsin said his fuel business was up 60 six zero percent uh this last month wow and, and I mean, that's, gas. that's exactly what we need so i mean that's that's excellent because i mean again it's all a trickle down so if, if right. you're seeing those kind of numbers in in uh, people uh, financing aircraft and buying aircraft, especially used aircraft, well, when they buy it, they invest in it. When they invest in it to upgrade it, that helps all these avionics companies. That helps the engine companies and the parts companies and uh, breaks everything. Um, and the local AMPs and shops and avionics uh, shops. I mean, everybody who touches these aircraft, I'm, I'm you know, I've got so many uh, connections in the community. I'm always, you know, rooting for them and hoping that they don't have to lay people off, have a strong backlog. And, uh, and I really hope that that continues to be the case. It sort of seems like it will be, you know, all the uh, OEMs I talked to and, and in the shops, avionic shops, or you know, lots of people that are connected to AOPA, they're all having a really good year. And, you know, some of our bigger sponsors, whether it's Sporties or Spruce, they're having a great year. People selling new headsets and all, all the alike. So um, it seems, again, as long as we do this responsibly and, and do it safely, uh, we're in for a, an uptick here. And I don't know why it won't stay that way for quite some time. Again, I feel badly for some of the people involved in the airline business because I think it's going to be challenging for a good yeah. long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we certainly don't, you know, like the fact that it's at, at the expense of the airline business at all. I, I think you mentioned responsible travel. I mean, we're, we're still we're certainly traveling less now, but having people have the ability to travel, it's, it's doesn't seem to me like that is creating more trouble. I think what it's doing is reducing the fact that you don't have a hundred and plus people and that are, you know, having to worry about whether they're catching it during the transportation process right. itself. Uh, and we can eliminate that in general aviation and business aviation. And maybe, maybe that'll help spark a, a boom in that. Cause I know so many people looked at a pilot shortage and uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping it's coming back. 
Well, it was, uh, it was interesting to listen to the airline uh, leaders that talk about they're going to see some furloughs, some layoffs, and some of the people are taking early retirements and, and hopefully, you know, some vaccine or some way of getting around it. But I do think there's probably some permanent shifts in, the, in what's acceptable and what people are willing to do. And, and frankly, like tonight, we're all figuring out this video thing a little bit different. In some cases, you know, the international travel won't be quite as necessary for those two-hour meetings. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for everything that uh, that you've done for coming on Social Delight Live and telling us your story. Uh, I, I really, really do appreciate it. Well, Jeff, uh, you, you keep up the good work and keeping this community uh, engaged, excited, and, and uh, positive uh, is what you do. And I thank you for that as well. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you at the Seaplane Base next year. Oh, absolutely. I will absolutely <laughs> be there. And so everyone, thank you so, so much for joining us this evening uh, with AOK President Mark Baker. His story, um, feel free to post questions. We'll certainly do our best to get those followed up afterwards with everything. If you don't already subscribe to Social Flight, be sure to check out socialflight.com and the free Social Flight mobile apps. All the, all the tens of thousands of events. There are webinars. There's so many things happening. It is all free and a great way to help support general aviation. Find those destinations like the ones that we showed at the beginning of the show uh, as well. And here at Social Flight Live, we are going to be going on our own adventure. We will be off for the next two weeks. And then we will be back on Tuesday, August 25th at 8 p.m. We're going to have T-51 Mustang night. See this uh, project behind me? That's our Mustang here in our living room. And uh, we're going to take everyone on a tour and show you all sorts of stuff about what's going on uh, with that. Answer lots of questions about that. And then on Tuesday, September 1st, First, Mike Bush is back here, and we're going to talk Lena Peak Operations. Many, many more exciting shows to come. And again, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. I really do appreciate your time this evening uh, and helping inspire general aviation, all you do. Thanks, pal. See you all. Take care, everyone. Blue skies. 